We're going to continue in the book of Daniel. If you haven't turned there, we've got two goals today. One is to complete the last part of the outline sheet on the first page there, and then uh, the next goal is to get a little bit into the overview of the book. So that's where we will be heading in this most exciting of books. In fact, if you're ever struggling, if you're ever suffering, and I doubt that any of you are being persecuted in the way that most Christians have experienced persecution, that uh, this book is one of the most encouraging books along those lines, and we'll see why in a moment. So just a quick review. Last time I gave you some background on the book. We looked at the author, who is a very interesting individual. In fact, of all of the characters of the Bible, this is one that probably had more education, more training, more background than perhaps any, more so than anyone except maybe somebody like Moses. So God used that background, and we'll see hints of that in the overview of the book. Background here, we talked about historical background. I'll show you another slide that kind of gets us caught up in that. And basically that background leads ultimately to the exile, where that's the time frame in which Daniel writes the exile of Israel. Date of writing is probably shortly after or right around 530 B.C., so this is Old Testament time, and that's important because that date, in terms of the prophecies of the book, causes a lot of problems with liberal theologians because he predicts very precisely events that take place hundreds of years after, so they don't like that he writes in that time frame. We talked a little bit about that last time. And the purpose of the book, we're going to get a little bit more into that. Today, that's where we left off, and we'll start off right off the bat. The main purpose, I think, is to show the sovereignty of the Lord, or sovereignty of Yahweh. That's how it's pronounced in the Old Testament. Sovereignty over all rebellious world powers. Now, this is important because, remember, the children of Israel are in exile, and they're, essentially, they have lost their homeland, they've lost their temple, they've, in some cases, lost a lot of lives and some of them under persecution, so it gives them assurance of the future. God has not abandoned them. In fact, that's a major theme. But God is the one that is working, and he's the one that brought judgment into their experience. He's going to also give them the future that is promised by all of the covenants. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on the sovereignty of God. Of all of the books, Daniel is the clearest of all of the books of the Bible. Secondly, it's to show God as faithful to his covenant people in protecting and preserving them. And he's going to predict things that preserves them and ultimately has to protect them. And thirdly, it's to show Daniel as an example of godliness to the exiles. And I mentioned last time, it's not only an example to the exiles, but it's an example to us in the 21st century because it's inspired. And particularly, I think, in fact, I use it with young people because Daniel is an example of what a young man can do. Now, throughout the book, we see 
lot of stages in his life, but he gets to Babylon as a teenager. He could have been as young as 15, 16 years old, and chapter 1 is a great example, particularly, and then you see the progress throughout the book. So Daniel is an example of godliness to particularly the exiles in the book, Jewish exiles, but it's also an example for us today, particularly teenagers. Well, that leads us to where we left off last time, and let's look at some of the characteristics of the book. And like I mentioned, the main theme, if you will, and the clearest explanation of the sovereign and powerful or omnipotent God, the sovereignty of God. Now, what we mean by that, quick definition, when we speak of God's sovereignty, we mean that there are things that are going on in the universe that are unseen that God actually is orchestrating. In fact, he is sovereign or he is working in all circumstances. Unseen, but he is working history to bring it to its end. He works in individual lives to accomplish his goals and his purposes, ultimately, in individuals. He even works in terms of the natural realm, and in the series that I do on science and the scriptures, one of the main things I stress is that God is sovereign over every electron in the entire universe. In other words, there's not an electron that flies out of its orbit without God orchestrating and either permitting or actually even moving those electrons. So he is sovereign over all things. book of Daniel is one of the clearest of all of the books. Now, I would propose to you, read every book of the Bible, because every book of the Bible will, in fact, teach this concept or this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Some of them more so, some of them more overt, and probably the most overt is the book of Daniel. Let me just give you an example. I've got a whole page here. Uh, went through the book to just find little explicit statements on the sovereignty of God. We won't go over all of them, but let me highlight some of the clearest ones. And in that, sovereignty over individuals. Let's uh, start reading some of these. Read them quickly. Read them loudly. By the way, I edit these and put it on the website, and sometimes I don't pick up because you don't read loud enough. So read loudly, and you'll, your voice will go out worldwide. Imagine that. Go ahead. Start on that one, and you do chapter one. Who wants to do chapter two? Somebody? All right, Jim. And I'll have you do both of chapter two. Who wants to do the last part of chapter two? Connie? And there's another one. Why don't you do that one as well, Connie? And then chapter 3. We need somebody for chapter 3. All right. Start off. Chapter 1, Jenny, you want to do verse 2 right off the bat. Okay. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought this to the Lord Shinar, the house of his God. He brought the vessels of God. Okay. Notice the first part of that. Did you notice... Now, that's not as clear as some of the passages we'll look at, but right off the bat, uh, verse 2, what's going on in history at that point? Did you notice a little phrase there? It's God, the one that delivered the king of Israel into the hands of the Babylonians. In other words, it's not just a random act. It's not by simply the will of evil men, evil kings, 
but it's actually God handing him over. You got number verse 9 there. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion Okay, it wasn't just Daniel's training and education and diligence. Yes, it involved those things, but who is behind it? God is the one that gave the wisdom. And then uh, verse 17. As for these, for you, God gave them knowledge and intelligence every branch of wisdom. Okay, all the wisdom, knowledge, etc. comes from God, verse 17. Not as clear as some of these other verses. For example, chapter 2, verse 21. You got that one, Jim. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to them of Can that be any clearer? In other words, no one comes to power apart from the sovereign, permissive will of God. And sometimes even more overtly than just simply the permissive will. Sometimes God orchestrates events such that kings come into power, which is a great comfort and a great encouragement to know that he is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over leadership. And he's sovereign over world history. Read. Did you get through 38 there? No, I'm right up. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Now, who's he talking to? Who's Daniel talking to? Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the empire that ruled the world of that day. So he was greater than any king today in that he had sovereignty. That king had sovereignty, limited sovereignty, over all other kingdoms. And Daniel says, who gave him that sovereignty? God of heaven has given the kingdom power, strength, and glory. Wherever the sun can dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of them. Okay, that is Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty strong statement, right? That statement, God is not only sovereign over kings, he's sovereign over the Babylonian Empire, he is sovereign over the natural realm. Did you notice a little note in there? Over the birds and what other animals in there? Read uh, 44 and 45 as well. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be broken. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone cut out of the mountain without hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold, the great God has made me bold to pass at this. Okay, there's a kingdom. Has that kingdom ever been set up? Pardon me? Not yet. It is yet future. So that means all of the events that we are experiencing today are within that sovereign plan, and God is going to orchestrate events such that that future kingdom, even from the 21st century, that Daniel predicts in 530 B.C., that kingdom is going to come about. God is going to bring it. Now, that's going to be the final kingdom on earth. Now, we'll look at that vision that Daniel saw that these verses refer to. We'll come back to that. But the thing we want to emphasize here is God is sovereign over all of these events. Read 47 also, Connie. King answered and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the one of the pillar of secrets. 
Okay, even Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is the sovereign of the universe. Now, he is sovereign over a large kingdom, a world kingdom, but he acknowledges that Daniel's God, now remember, he's a pagan unbeliever, and even that unbeliever has seen and recognized that God can reveal the secrets of his dreams. We'll, we'll look at that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And Daniel interprets it, and as a result, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Who's got 3, 17, and 18? If it be so, our God, who serves in the universe, will be sent to fire, and he will deliver us out of it. These are the three other Jewish youths. They refused to bow down before the pagan idols, and as a result, they're to be cast into the fiery furnace. Remember that story? Well-known story. They express their confidence that the sovereign God, if he so chooses, will preserve them in that passage. And if not, they will... uh, suffer whatever God allows them to suffer. But the point being, they are acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Then chapter 4, somebody get it, and somebody else get You get 4, 2, and 3. Who wants 4, 17 through the rest of the chapter there? A few notes there. We won't read all of them, but I think you're getting the feel for it. Connie's got it. Do 4, 2, and 3. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for now, this is Nebuchadnezzar. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is of everlasting kingdom. His dominion is of generation to generation. Now, that dominion, you could even translate it, his sovereignty is over the Babylonian kingdom, and it's over all, and it's from when to when? Generation to generation. In other words, it is essentially an eternal sovereign rule. And... Again, the significance of this is this is the greatest world leader of that day. He acknowledges there's a sovereign above him. And the purpose of the dream is given in chapter 417, which indicates sovereignty. You got that, Connie? This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the work of In other words, this dream is by decree. Sovereign decree. Keep reading. In order that living may know that the most high rule of men The Most High, who is that? It's God. He rules. He is sovereign. Keep reading. See how clear these passages are on the sovereignty of God, particularly over the greatest of sovereignties? Did you do 25? They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be pieces of them. They shall make you grass like oxen. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar needs to be humbled in order that he may know where power comes from. His power comes from. You got 32? And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be in peace and field. You grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over the nose most of men. Okay, it repeats it. Until you know that the Most High rules amongst men, until you recognize that God is, in fact, sovereign. Who's got 426? Need some more readers here. 
Jenny, and why don't you also do 434. Somebody do 5. Who's got 5? You got it, Jim? And I'll have you do 26. Who wants to do Chapter 6? Notice we're only in Chapter 6 on the slide there, or we're not getting there. Chapter, who's got 6? You got it back there. Linda, do 7. 426. And in that it was handed to stop the roots of the tree. It is heaven that rules. And read 34 through 37. But at the end of that period, I never considered in my reason returned to me, and I blessed the high and praised and honored So he's blessing, he's praising the one who lives forever, and what else? For it is an everlasting dominion. It's an everlasting sovereignty, everlasting dominion. Okay, it's hard to find passages clearer than the ones in Daniel. Chapter 5, who's got it? 20, 20 and 21. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of peace. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, but he recognized... Until he recognized what? Most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind, that he sets over it whenever he Okay, that's his humbling, Nebuchadnezzar, again. And read 26, 526. This is the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end. God has put an end to his kingdom. He raises up kings, he puts them down. 625, you got it? A different king, acknowledging the sovereignty. Okay, he acknowledges the, and this is a Persian king now. And by the way, I'll, we'll talk about this when we do the overview. It's not chronological, so you have to kind of follow. It gives you some of the dating, but it's not chronological. This is a Persian king that will, in fact, take over after they destroy the Babylonian Empire. I'll give you some of that in the overview. But the point there is a different king acknowledging also that there's only one true sovereign over all, all things. Linda, I think you've got seven, nine, and ten. Now, this is a vision that Daniel has of actually a heavenly throne. Keep going. A throne, particularly in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, this is a heavenly throne. That's an image or a picture of rulership or sovereignty. In other words, God has control over all things. The Ancient of Days, that's a very interesting passage. We'll come back to that one. And Linda, read 27 as well. Then the sovereign, then the sovereign, the greatness under the whole heaven, the kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Okay, there's a future kingdom that has not yet arrived. 
There's yet future, and by the way, we're going to look at that when we uh, get back into the Olivet Discourse. I'm giving you Daniel just as a foundation and more as an introduction to the Olivet Discourse to understand that God will orchestrate all the events that are yet future, particularly those in the Olivet Discourse, and he will do it because he's demonstrated sovereignty in the past and even predicted it in places like Daniel in the Old Testament. We won't look this one up, but in chapter 9, in fact, I'm going to look at that passage specifically. This is one of the most interesting of all Bible prophecies. We won't get to it today, but next week I'll give you an overview of the 70 weeks that are decreed. 70 weeks of Israelite history are predicted. 70 weeks. 69 of them have elapsed. Now we're going to see that in that passage, there is implied a gap between the first 69 weeks and the 70th week. 69 of them have been fulfilled to the very day. And I'll explain what we mean by weeks. These are weeks of years. So weeks of years, how many years? 70 times 70 times 7 equals how many years? 490 years of Israel's history. Now there's a gap in there. A gap where Israel is set aside. There's a week of years, seven years precisely. We'll look at that. But one of the things that we will notice is that God is sovereign over world history because he is still orchestrating events that will lead up to those seven years that are yet future. And much of the New Testament eschatology or Bible prophecy, much of the New Testament that deals with the end of the age, deal with this 70th week of Daniel or seven-year period of time. In fact, it's broken down in the book of Revelation into two halves. We'll see that. And it's reflected in the, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So, you get the picture here? You think God is sovereign? Now, this is very, very encouraging in terms of you and I as individuals. If God can orchestrate events on a worldwide basis, and if he can orchestrate even down to the parts of molecules and electrons, you think that he can be sovereign over the little pity things that you and I face every day, no matter how difficult they may seem in our eyes? This is one of the greatest comforts, this teaching, this doctrine, that you'll find anywhere in all of Scripture. So whenever you're struggling or you're wondering, you know, what your life is heading or whatever, think in terms of aligning yourself with what God is doing because he is sovereign and he will get us ultimately where he is promised. And you and I have uh, promises that cannot be shaken. And that's a great encouragement. So that's one of the main characteristics of the book of Daniel is the sovereign hand of God. And it takes omnipotent power to orchestrate and to accomplish those events that are even future from our day. The second characteristic, somewhat related to the sovereignty of God, 
is this idea of history itself. And I think we have a complete philosophy of history. I've given you this before. Let me just review it real quickly. A central passage is Paul, but the book of Daniel illustrates this principle in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. And this gives a complete philosophy of history. Look it up in your UNM World History book. Think you'll find it? I don't think so. It actually begins in verse 24 where Paul is actually refuting the philosophers of his day that generally met in Athens. This is his teaching or his dealing with the philosophers at Athens. And what he's doing is he is demolishing their worldview. One aspect of that worldview that he's demolishing is their view of history. And what he does is he gives a biblical philosophy of history, a complete philosophy of history. And we could spend a whole hour just developing what we have in just these few verses. But let me give you the highlights of it. He made, what does that tell you about history? God is the beginning of all history. He is the creator, and history begins with his creation. That is the first major event of world history. You don't believe it? Look it up in your UNM textbook. You laugh, right? Okay. That is the beginning of world history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the first major event of world history. What you'll find in your UNM textbook is evolution, which is a false concept. He made from one man. What does that talk about? Creation of mankind, Adam and Eve. It goes all the way back. Adam and Eve are the first people on the scene, first events of world history. One man, every nation of mankind. So all nations ultimately stem from one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. To live and notice that he is orchestrating it to live on all the face of the earth, having determined. What is that word? What does that refer to? Sovereignty. Very good. God is determining these events. God determines events of world history, having determined their appointed times. In other words, nations have particular lifespans, you might even say. God determines their beginnings. God determines their end. And they do not go beyond whatever he has determined. Now, he allows the sin of man to destroy their own nation, and that's what's happening in our country right now. But God has a plan, and he is orchestrating leading events to the events that we'll look at in the Olivet Discourse. Not only their times, in other words, their rise and their fall, but what else? Even their geography. God is sovereign over where nations reside. And we won't get into it, but in verse 27, we have a purpose statement. There's a purpose for world history. There's a purpose that God has for all things that he is orchestrating. And the main purpose, we won't get into it, but it gives people opportunity to come to know him. In other words, to be able to see through all of the evil in a world, to recognize that there's things beyond this earthly existence, that ultimately we are accountable to God, and ultimately the gospel message is the means by which we come into a saving relationship. That's the purpose of world history. Complete philosophy. Now there's some other things in there that we won't get into. 
The book of Daniel illustrates for us this outworking and God's sovereignly working amongst these big areas like nations. And essentially, this philosophy of history, we have a kingdom of God that is unseen, largely, apart from what people can see in us. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a sovereign rule that God has. And God is working. Imminent in history means that he is involved in the events themselves. So there's the kingdom of God. There's also the kingdom of the world that the book of Daniel illustrates. And he's going to give us an outline of world history in chapter 2 that we'll look at. Kingdoms of the world that are corrupt, that are temporal, and they are all under the sovereignty of God. And the book of Daniel not only predicts it, but also illustrates it in the kingdoms that Daniel deals with. All right? Second characteristic, a complete philosophy of history illustrated in the book of Daniel. Thirdly, Daniel is somewhat different in terms of the type of literature from most of the other books of the Bible. Ezekiel has some of the characteristics that Daniel has. We call that apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. It's a subset of prophecy or prophetic literature. There's a lot of prophetic literature in the Bible. In other words, it generally tells things in the future. That's one aspect of the prophetic literature. And there's a subset. It's called apocalyptic. It's specialized. And it's particular. Let me give you the features of that. And by the way, the book of Revelation in the New Testament also would be considered apocalyptic. Daniel, Revelation, they're apocalyptic. First of all, they record a high number or percentage of visions and sometimes dreams. It's one of the characteristics of apocalyptic. And we'll see. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. Daniel interprets it. Other kings have dreams. Only Daniel can interpret them. Daniel himself will have a series of visions towards uh, the latter part of the book of Daniel. So, visions and dreams, very prominent. So also, book of Revelation. Secondly, lots of symbols, lots of signs that are used, so we have to be careful in interpreting them. And I'll give you more detail on interpreting signs. We interpret them literally, just bottom line. Thirdly, apocalyptic literature, you'll have the presence of an angelic revealer. Sometimes they'll reveal a vision, and sometimes they'll interpret a vision. That's apocalyptic literature. And you have that in the book of Daniel, you have that in the book of Revelation. You have it elsewhere, but not so much as Daniel and Revelation. Fourthly, we have the program of God that lays out a future program. And this is very evident in the book of Daniel. We've already touched on that future kingdom. We're going to look at that in some detail. You might even consider some of the Olivet Discourse somewhat almost apocalyptic. So when we get back to it, even though there's no visions per se, Jesus is interpreting these visions. Jesus is something is acting somewhat like that angelic revealer in giving us an interpretation of the the events related to the Olivet Discourse. So we have God's program for the future. We touched on it already, just looking at the sovereignty. Fifthly, it generally uses prose rather than poetry. A lot of the prophets 
use poetry. That's a literary form in itself, poetic literature. Isaiah, most of Isaiah is poetic. It's prophetic, but it's also in the form of poetic. But apocalyptic, it's prose. In other words, it's like historical, it's like narrative almost. But it is prophetic. So those are your main characteristics of apocalyptic literature. And that's what Daniel is. We have a philosophy of history. The type of literature is apocalyptic. Another characteristic is the structure of the book. I've already mentioned it's not chronological. It's not chronological, so it's out of sequence. In fact, I'll probably put together a timeline so you can kind of put the prophecies in their proper historical order. Not every historical book, not every even prophetic book is chronological. Matthew's Gospel, for example, is not chronological. In general, it's chronological, but some of the events are out of sequence. So also the book of Daniel. So here's a, here's all of the book of Daniel on one slide. Those of you that like the entire book on one slide, I gave you Matthew all on one slide. Here's Daniel all on one slide. In fact, I've given you all of world history on one slide. Remember the slide from eternity to eternity? All of world history on one slide. An entire two-semester course on one slide. World history. And our world history includes from eternity to eternity. I also, I think I've given you a slide on the whole Bible on one slide, haven't I? No? I'll give it to you someday. I'll give you too many. Well, here's Daniel, one slide. At the top there, we have an introduction, and in the time remaining, we'll take a quick look at chapter 1. That's chapter 1. The chapters are in the middle there. The first seven chapters after chapter 1, beginning in chapter 2 through 7, primarily deal with Gentile nations, and basically deal with world history. Gentile nations and world history. Chapters 8 through 12, what might you anticipate? What might you expect? Israel, right, the Jewish nation, Israel, primarily deals with the nation of Israel. Because that's the focus, that's the main interest. But Israel needs to understand the place of the nations in world history to be able to better understand the place that God has for the nation of Israel. And the prophecies, beginning in chapter 8, deal with primarily the nation of Israel. Interestingly, Daniel is written in two languages. From chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 4, it's actually written in the Hebrew language. Now, most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, except for a few verses here and there, and extended passages in the book of Daniel. So, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, it's in Aramaic. Why is it in Aramaic? Anyone wants to guess? That would have been the language spoken by those Gentiles in the area. Exactly. That was the language of the day. It was the English of that generation, of that time frame. Like today, even though English isn't spoken all over the world, air traffic controllers all over the world, so everywhere that people fly, for example, English is the default language. And most people in most of the countries, a lot of them speak English. When I go to Ukraine, the young people have learned English. Sometimes not so well, but at least they know it well enough to get on the Internet. 
to be able to access things that are predominantly in English. Most countries are bilingual. They know their own language and they know others. Some countries are trilingual. What's the characteristic of Americans? Monolingual. They only know one. All right. Well, Aramaic was the main language of the peoples of that day. And even the Jewish people, after the exile, had lost their language. So part of the book is in uh, Aramaic, and then the last part is also in Hebrew. Okay, chapters 1 through 6 are predominantly historical. Predominantly historical. Chronicling Daniel's relationship with these kings and these empires. And chapters 7 through 12, primarily prophetic, looks ahead, looks to the future. Even though there are some prophetic portions in those dreams, the uh, latter part is more prophetic. In the first part, the first six chapters, Daniel is interpreting the visions or the dreams of the kings. In the last part, an angel, remember this is apocalyptic literature, an angel interprets the visions for Daniel. So there's your Daniel in one slide. Let's do an overview, and we'll probably just get into chapter 1, and then I'll give you an overview of the rest of the book next time. Okay, here's world history on one slide. This is all of world history from eternity to eternity. History primarily deals with what God is doing in the universe. And what God did in the Old Testament predominantly dealt with the nation of Israel. So the first part of world history deals with the origin of Israel. Now we have the origin of all things in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, and then it focuses in 12 through 50, the origin of Israel. And it covers that time frame. See these little brackets here? This time frame. And then after that time frame, we have the nation of Israel emerging, becoming a nation. They're just patriarchs in Genesis. Book of Exodus through the book of Judges, we have the emergence of the nation. And then after that, we have a period called the kingdom, the kingdom age, or the kingdom of Israel. God intends to delegate, in fact, he delegated to man in the original creation, sovereignty over the earth. Limited, small-scale sovereignty, that was God's purpose. One of the purposes that he gave to mankind is to rule the earth, subdue it and rule. He intended eventually to work that out by a group of people that would be his people, the nation of Israel, that he called out from the nations. That's the kingdom of Israel. That's their high point in Old Testament history. But, because they're sinners, much like you and I, kingdom collapsed, and in fact the kingdom was destroyed. That's the period of time that Daniel predicts. God is not done with his people, and in fact there's a future, and Daniel's going to lay out some of that future. And I'll give you an overview of that, and we'll start with chapter 1. So turn to chapter 1. We can break it down into different parts. The exile of the choice youths. Let's go ahead and read some of those verses. Who wants to start us off on that? Go ahead, Jim, read the first three verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The king ordered 
Ashpenaz, chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the Okay, those are the choice families, the choice youth. So, not only vessels from the temple that was already destroyed, this records kind of that event of this exile. This is the first wave. And Daniel would have been amongst them. We're introduced to them in those first few verses. Where's the land of Shinar? Babylon. Present day what? Iraq. Iraq. Present day Iraq. Babylon. In fact, from Jerusalem that is mentioned, where the temple is destroyed, they would have taken a little circular route up north first, then to the east, and then there's Babylon. Now, in this period of time, that's the Babylonian kingdom. They would have not only been control over that, but they would have been sovereign basically over the rest of the world as well. But particularly the Babylonian kingdom, that would be it. So that's present-day Iraq. And by the way, Baghdad is about 60 miles north of Babylon, just to give you kind of a perspective there. Let's read a little bit more here. What do we have in 4 through 7? Who wants to read those? You got it? Go ahead. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in sports, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He appointed for them a daily ration from each choice of the humble wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Then he command, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Ananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, so that kind of gives you the setting of this experience that Daniel is going to have. Let's look at a few things in there. Youths in whom there is no defect, physically fit, athletes, right? Who are good looking, very attractive. Showing intelligence, in other words, good grades. Show potential in every branch of wisdom. Discerning, and not just knowledge, but wisdom and discernment here. These are young people. These are, these are those excellent students, student athletes, students that have great potential. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saw potential there. He endeavors to retrain them. They're going to have an all-expense-paid education. The intent of Nebuchadnezzar... Brainwashing. Hmm? Brainwashing, okay. The intent is to brainwash, yep, and to redirect, but uh, he's not dealing with ordinary youths. They're not only wise and discerning, but they also have a spiritual upbringing and a spiritual grounding. So they're going to take in all of the positive aspects of that training, but they're going to redirect it and sort out the false teaching and be in a position to be able to be very effective, particularly Daniel. So very important. Encourage your young people to get the best education they can, but be careful in terms of the false ideas like evolution and other false ideas. I was going to say that those that, that succumb to the brainwashing, you don't ever hear about. That's right. Right. So you need to be careful. Take the best of it. Sort it out. 
get rid of that that is false, and you be in a position to be a leader like like Daniel. So this just gives you a feel for the reconstruction of Babylon. I'll look at that some more next week. So we have the XLR Choice Youths. We have a proposal by Daniel, and you see his vision immediately. And that's probably where we'll leave off, and we'll pick up in verse 8, and I'll give you some highlights, and then we'll do an overview of the rest of the book. Now, we'll move more rapidly. I'd like to kind of highlight chapter 1, because there's so so many good principles that we can learn from them. Just a closing thought. One of the greatest comforts in the midst of suffering is trusting God's sovereignty. Who wants to close for us this morning? Mary Lee, you're good. Thank you so much. Daniel next week.